0: Another Way to Play, episode 11.
1: Hey, this is uh, Steven Webster, I'm the CEO of Ascensi. And if you want to learn how I think about building the habits for continuous improvement, then you should be listening to Another Way to Play uh, with my good friend and someone who inspires me very much, Hans Struznia.
0: Welcome to Another Way to Play, your wake-up call to finally make a difference by creating a life defined by freedom. This is about entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and industry professionals that have left the nine-to-five rat race behind by taking that personal leap from where they were to where they want to be. It's time to stop going through the motions, stop hitting the snooze button on your life, and get the insight and inspiration to make the next chapter of your life better than your last. This is Another Way to Play with your host, Hans Struzina. Welcome to Another Way to Play. I am your host, Hans Struzina, and I believe that if you trade hours for dollars, you will never achieve true freedom in your life. Today's guest is Stephen Webster. He's an entrepreneur, author, and karate expert. Uh, He spent more than 20 years at the forefront of the fusion of technology and design, having held a variety of leadership roles, both at Adobe and Microsoft. Uh, Fourth degree black belt. He's also one of the most successful coaches in British sports history. Uh, He came to California in 2009 after the sale of his company to Adobe uh, and he most recently left Microsoft in 2014 uh, to combine his passion for sports coaching and his deep expertise in technology and is now the CEO of a company called Asensei, which is a disruptive sports technology company that brings together technologies such as smart apparel, integrated censoring, motion capture and posture recognition, and machine learning and data science to create an artificial intelligence as a personal coach. Uh, Steven and I have a really cool conversation. Uh, we talk about a whole bunch of things. Uh, there's a couple in particular that you should listen for. Steven brings forward an idea of one punch mastered. He tells a story, in fact, of when he was coaching his team at a tournament that uh, they were only going to use one punch in the entire tournament and they mastered it and they ended up winning the whole thing. Uh, He also talks about having it be okay to be wrong and but understanding what kind of problem you're trying to solve and ultimately uh, leaning into what uh, the market is telling you what your employees or your teammates are telling you and deciding when to pivot or keep going and persevere and he has one really great piece of advice towards the end about being attached to the problem not the solution so listen for that coming up Uh, but before we get into the conversation as always I would love to have a conversation with you. So in the show notes, I have my Calendly link uh, so that you can book a time on my calendar for a 15-minute call. We can get to know each other a little bit. uh, And I would love to hear what it is you're liking on the show, what's working for you, uh, what you would like to hear more of, what kind of guests we should be getting, and what questions I should be asking them. Take a look in the Calendly link. Steven's information is also down there. So if you want to connect with him, find him there. And without any further ado... Here is my conversation with Stephen Webster. Stephen, thank you so much for sitting down with us and, and welcome to the show.
1: Of course, I'm excited.
0: Awesome. Well, the guests heard your intro. You've got a pretty interesting background, pretty different from a lot of the people we've had on. So why don't you build a little context of kind of where it all started for
1: you? Well, I'll start in Scotland. I'll start there. I, uh, you know, I live in California now. I live in the Bay Area. Uh, but I grew up in Scotland, a relatively small town called Crocoddy kind of midway between Edinburgh and uh, St. Andrews, which most people know as the home of golf. Uh, so fun place to grow up, um, pretty, pretty regular home life. You know, my parents were, you know, first generation that went to college. They worked hard, they worked hard for us. Uh, my dad went to night school and became an electrical engineer. Uh, he started working on telephone exchanges and tractors and ended up working on helmet-mounted di- displays on fighter jets. Uh, my mom was a teacher, I think that had a big impact on me. Yes, I was. You know, I feel I feel lucky. Growing up, we didn't have everything we wanted, but we never really wanted for anything. Um, You know, I think uh, you know through school. um, You know, I was I was a hard worker. I always enjoyed school. I always enjoyed studying. I was kind of that. um, I don't want to say nerdy kid. I tried to hide it, but I uh, you know I, I always enjoyed the subjects I was doing. I always tried to be top of the class. Um, and the only way you didn't get beat up in my town being top of the class was also being good at sport. so, and sports. So sports
0: is ultimately the way that, that you and I got connected and
1: right, yeah.
0: I remember a than I am. <laughs> well I don't know about if I was as good at karate as you were but we all have our, our moments right? <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly uh, yeah my story doesn't end at the Olympics so I'll kind of stop there but I was that kid I was uh, I was good at most I was good enough at most sports to kind of make the team but I was never the star player on the team so you know I played football like soccer I played a lot of hockey. I, I come from an ice hockey family. Both my mom's, uh, my mum's two brothers both played for Great Britain uh, in, in ice hockey. Uh, so, you know, I'd spend pretty much every evening uh, in, you know, through the winter skating at the ice rink and through the summer playing street hockey at the ice rink. Um, but yeah, I mean, you mentioned martial arts. I was, you know, pretty early on when I was like seven, Um, Like a school friend started bullying me as a kid and my parents were like, you know, we're going to take them to judo I don't have no idea why they chose judo, but they took me to judo class Uh, Very quickly that club collapsed and I I found a jiu-jitsu class and to be to be honest That was my path that kind of set me on my path for life I was a a Martial artist for the rest of my life since the age of seven Uh, And It's kind of funny. No one at school knew I was a martial artist um, you know, I you know, for, I managed to keep that a secret. I, I got my black belt when I was fourteen, in uh, nineteen eighty eight. I got my black belt when I was fourteen. I was one of the first juniors in the country that was allowed to sit the adult black belt. Uh, you know, you know, I, I got to sit with the adults and exam. Oh wow! With the adults, which was a big deal, and that was really kind of character forming as well. But even I was a black belt, nobody at school knew. I was training like four or five times a week, but I was always terrified that some kid bigger than me would say, what would you do if I did this? And then like throw a punch at me or tackle me or something. So, uh, you know, it was this kind of thing I kept to myself um, and it was something I did outside of school. Uh, but like I say, it, it kind of changed my life. It's become the foundation of, you know, so much else of, of what I've done.
0: So you, you for the reason that you didn't want to be challenged uh, at school by the bully, you you decided to keep that a secret. Was there any other kind of personal reasons for that? Or was it just simply uh, you <laughs> didn't want to get in an altercation at school?
1: I used to tell, so, you know, my story continues with me teaching at University of Edinburgh. And I used to always tell people, you know, I do martial arts because I don't like getting hit, not because I like getting hit. So, uh, sure. Yeah, I'm sure there's a part of that in it. But, you know, listen, as a kid, uh, my mom taught at the school that I went to. So, you know, I was pretty much double incentivized not to get into any trouble at school. Um, But, yeah, generally as a kid, I kept myself out of trouble. Um, I'd I'd like to think I wasn't particularly high maintenance with my parents. It wasn't really in my nature to, to, you know, to want to be scrapping, want to be fighting. And, uh, uh, yeah, and I think, you know, another big part of it is, and this is kind of a big part of who I am to this day, I seem to have a tendency to put myself out there in situations. You know, I'll stand on stage in front of thousands of people and present. I'll, you know, present at CES. I'll do this podcast with you. But the reality is, I'm generally uncomfortable um, being in the spotlight. I'm generally uncomfortable with people talking about me or you know, being the center of attention. And I think for me, you know, the martial arts was a little bit of that as well. It, it was, you know, not everybody at the time was doing martial arts and so I went on a black belt. And I just didn't really want the the scrutiny or the attention on it. It was something I did for me, not for other people.
0: Interesting. So there's certainly an, an inward amount of work or a focus, an inward focus is probably a better way to put that, um, that, that you were very, focused on doing something for you and not for the the recognition and the limelight and all that
1: yeah and it's funny because you know uh, you know in recent years is I've really spent time uh, you know following a journey of like you know I I work with a leadership program called Pathwise Leadership and it's all about conscious leadership and uh, I've spent a lot of time with that really trying to understand my personality and how that reflects with others and I'm actually quite value driven, like a core part of my personality is about value and recognition. Mm-hmm. Um, but that value and recognition isn't a medal around my neck or being you know, told to stand up in a room full of 100 people while they all applause. Um, it's a little bit more, the mo- the motivation's a little more intrinsic for me. And it's just knowing that someone knows that I did well, if that makes sense. It's almost like a don't want to sound too esoteric, but it's more like an energetic exchange than an, an exchange of applause
0: interesting sense. yeah I I can totally relate to that I mean in my rowing career it was it's a team sport and so there's really as much as we want to idolize one or two guys it's it's really a team sport and you right. kind of fade into the 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 backdrop of the team and so I you know you, you stand up on the metal stand or what have you certainly with one of 8 or one of 4 or some you know it's yeah. very rarely just you and so i can completely understand that part Well, the rowing's always
1: fascinated me the more you know since i've got to know you and the more i've got to know others in the rowing community i, I just i'm fascinated by this dichotomy of you guys compete against each other for the right to be inseparable as a team it's uh it's it's pretty pretty distinct and pretty unique the um, the competitiveness that exists within the team in order to then compete as a team it's Ab-
0: absolutely it's it <laughs> <laughs> kind of a bizarre dynamic when you really yeah. break it down like that yeah so uh, kind of looking back on your on your early trajectory you were focused in school you really liked school you you competed at a lot of different sports and then you ultimately found karate which you decided to somewhat keep to yourself and <laughs> you you took you succeeded at that obviously in a big way and then you took that to the university level.
1: Well, I did, you know, so I went to university and it's funny, yeah, I didn't go far like I, I you know, I lived in this town Cricciardi and I managed to go like, you know, 30 miles across the water, the equivalent of like growing up in San Francisco and then studying at Berkeley. Um I mean the topology is almost identical and uh you know, so I went to Edinburgh and I really wanted to compete in a sport. You know, I think that, you know, by this point, what am I? I'm like 17, 18. You know, by this point, this is part of my DNA. Like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I love to play sport. I love to compete. I love to be in a team. It's kind of my decompress from like working my ass off um, academically. Um, I, I think balance and everything is important. And that was a balance I'd found that worked for me. Um, you know, if I played and competed in sport and had sort of that camaraderie of a team, um, it allowed me to kind of you know, get my head in the books and really focus and learn as well. So I really, my, my, my jiu-jitsu instructor, um, you know, by this point I was almost a second degree, I think I got my second degree black belt in my first year at university. And uh, my jiu-jitsu instructor was really keen that I open a, open a jiu-jitsu club at the university and sort of expand the organization. And I didn't really want to do that because the jiu-jitsu I studied wasn't competitive. Um, you know There were no competitions, there were no tournaments. And I kind of fancied my chances competing at something, so I, I got a notion to start karate and sport karate in particular, and uh joined one of the two clubs there um, and you know that became my social life that became my peer group I mean to this day, the people that I you know like on Facebook and can 't wait to meet their kids are you know we've broken each other 's noses and we've <laughs> fought on teams together and we 've you know rode on buses together uh, you know that 's really my core group of people so you know, I competed for the club, uh, I captained the club. And then a few years after I graduated, so when I graduated, uh, my first job was also in Edinburgh. I was, a, I was an electronics engineer, a chip designer. So I was kind of like still hanging out at the club um, as an assistant coach. And then there was a pretty, uh, pretty dramatic moment where the club de- decided to fire my coach, the university decided to fire my coach. Um, and the club asked if I would take over the coaching of the club, and you know I was like in my early twenties, and I didn't feel ready for it, but I was excited about it. Kind of like I said earlier, right? It's like I want to do it, and I don't want to yeah. do it all at the same time. Um, but I, you know, I'll, I'll you know, at the beginning of this story is like, okay, I'll take over the club, and you know, I think that moment, that point of inflection, changed everything. Um, or informed everything about how I've gone on to build companies or, or build teams inside of companies. Right. Now. I'd love to unpack that. And tell yeah.
0: You. I was just about to ask you to, so thank you for offering. Um, there's a really interesting moment of uh, a couple of ideas of transition in there that I think are really applicable to the audience. Uh, one is how do you go from competing to coaching and, 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 or, or do you scratch the same itch? I was going to ask, can you? But maybe you don't.
1: You um, know, it's funny. There's a, my goodness, you've totally reminded me of a moment. So uh, like, let's fast forward and let's make sure we rewind. But let's fast forward yes. to that moment where I decided I'm not in it for the sport anymore. So um, one, of my, uh, one of my students, now a good friend and British Airways pilot, uh, Ross Middleton, uh, Ross was competition mad, like he just loved sparring, he loved competing and he wanted me to take him along to the um, the Scottish selections, you know, to be selected for the national squad, like team pool training I guess. And so he wanted someone to take him, I had no interest really in competing, but he wanted someone to take him so I went along with him, I you know, put my gear on and took part. And at that time, my karate was going in a very different direction. I was starting to lean very heavily into really studying old, old karate when it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, getting too much into it. And if your audience isn't a martial arts audience, they'll be like, uh, but without getting into it too much, I was really getting into very old school karate where it was a pretty brutal martial art for self-defense. And applying that, I was starting to you know train alongside and sometimes even teach like you know police and riot squads and really in the world of you know physical confrontation and conflict you know long story short at the end of selections you know there I am standing there hoping that uh Ross is you know gonna get asked to come along and they invited me they asked me if I wanted to go and uh, train with the Scottish team
0: oh my gosh wow
1: and it was clear as day I had no interest you know I had no interest in uh that being a part of uh, what I do. Um, I enjoyed coaching way more than I enjoyed competing uh, from a sports perspective. Um, And I was enjoying this other aspect of martial arts, the kind of the whole, you know, when you get into the world of self defense, it's like a lot about psychology and mindset, Mm -hmm. as much as it is about physicality, technique, and uh, that's the direction I went in. So that kind of caps off my story. But for the next 10 years, I still thoroughly enjoyed teaching sport karate, and uh, you know, the, the headline to that story is, we went from a club that had never won a championship to I won 10 in a row, and the club ultimately won 18 in a row. And the last eight, the coaches of the club, they used to be my white belt students, so I kind of coached the coaches. So, oh, cool. and, you know, I'm, I'm, here I am in California, like 7,000 miles away. If I look over my shoulder, the trophy is sat behind me, and I lifted that trophy as a, as a student. Um, and I lifted that trophy as a coach and I told everyone if I win that 10 times I'm keeping the trophy <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it so man there's like so many interesting kind of transition moments because I think a lot of the people will be listening to this will be looking for some level of inspiration in, in their transition whether it's um transitioning to being an entrepreneur or pivoting out of a business into something else or or simply just starting a side hustle like you know you've you've had a multitude of transitions both geographically from profession from student to teacher you know what's a what's a common thread that you used in your moments of transition uh to to kind of guide you through those moments
1: Man, that's a really great question. I mean, you use this phrase, uh, you know, I heard you use it when you talked about this podcast, like finding another way to play. And, you know, I, you know, I, I say this about myself and I mean it about a lot of my students. I, you know, I really believe I, uh, um, you know, I learned everything about my life on the tatami, on the mat. Uh, and I learned so many lessons, um, both as a student of karate, but more importantly, building a club and building a club that was able to like win in sport, but also became known as a club that almost shunned the sport side of karate and went in this other whole direction. And so, you know, I think there's a a number of things that come out of that. I mean, the first is, you know, I became known as a heretic. You know, I really threw out conventional wisdom about what karate was and how it should be taught. I mean, I remember some of the, the other martial arts, the other not so winning martial arts clubs at the university. Um, there's a glimpse into the 20 years later competitiveness, but yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but some of the other clubs like tried to basically stop us getting funded as a club because we weren't teaching real karate. I couldn't get my students insured because the Scottish Karate Board wouldn't insure us because I was teaching throws and arm locks and groundwork. I wasn't just teaching punches and kicks, so I was kind of seen as a as a as a heretic. I even you know I marketed the club very differently. Like you know, karate clubs around the world almost share the same poster and share the same bullet points. And I took this really distinctive approach to how I branded. You know, looking back, you know, I I did a decent job on branding. I really decided on like let's have a brand that's consistent at every touch point: posters, postcards. Um, You know, I remember in the freshers' fair. Like, I literally did sales training. I, I, you know, I'm 20-something in this story, and I, you know, I've not read this in any books, but I, I basically did sales training every year with the, you know, with the freshman students so that I was like, these are the 10 questions you're going to get asked all the time. What's the difference between karate and judo? How long will it take me to get a black belt? Blah, blah, blah. And I, and I would, like, sales train the freshers. Um, you know, I remember one of the things I'd always say is, like, always close by asking the person their name and saying, come and speak to me. Um, on Wednesday when you come to the class. Because I remember the most intimidating thing about joining the karate club was the first time I walked in the door. So knowing that there was like someone called Stephen in there that had said, come and see me when you when you show up, mm-hmm. gave me the courage to go, right? So, you know, I think, you know, in that karate club, I really thought about like, how can I get the right people in the door and how can I teach karate my way? But at the same time, Like, at the end of the day, you've got to move the metric that matters. And, uh, you know, for my club, you know, our funding, basically, if you're winning medals, the university is giving you more money and you're getting the good hall space and you're getting the good time slots. And so I used to say this to my club and anyone that ever worked for me at Microsoft or Adobe is like, wait a minute, you said that to us as well. I I used to always say just like, let's let the results speak for themselves. So I really focus on like, how are we going to win? Like, what do we need to do to not just like have individuals win, but have the team win? And so, uh, you know, I I totally reimagined how my club would uh, tackle sport karate. And uh, we showed up to her for a whole year. I only taught my class one technique, like one te- one punch. I was like, we're only allowed to use one punch in the tournament. And I can tell you the story now or some other time as to where I got that crazy idea for. Her. But um, we were so good at it. Like we, we scored it every single time and um, you know it was kind of like the Fosbury flop. Like once he went over that bar backwards, if anyone else wanted to win a medal, they were going to have to go over the bar backwards as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that's what happened in, in Scottish and British University cry is suddenly everyone else had to change the way they trained and change the way they competed to the Edinburgh University way or they just weren't able to compete against us. So. You know, lots of lessons in there that I've really brought to brought to how I build teams and how I build companies.
0: Gosh, there's there's so much great advice in there. I love the fact I I didn't know that story about the fact that you guys went to the tournament with only one punch in your in your two belt supposedly, yeah, um, or so to speak. Is the, gosh, who's the quote by uh, Bruce Lee or something? Um, some famous martial artist who said like, I don't fear the man who knows ten thousand punches. But I fear the man has practiced one punch ten thousand times. Yeah, like yeah.
1: You may be paraphrasing, and it may be Bruce Lee. I should probably know. Um, but uh, I was I,
0: hoping you would know. Yeah. I was Expecting you to come <laughs> in and save me on that. Oh, so I'll tell you a
1: story. I, I wasn't going to tell you, but I'll tell you since you're uh, you're going in this direction. Um, I, I remember, like, when I'm sitting down, I'm like, oh, geez, you know. So, so basically, the beginning of me coaching is the Scottish Championships are in two weeks. Um, we've never, as a club, been in a championship for like three or four years. Um, we've you know we've never seen a tournament most of my club and I, I sat down with the club. Excuse me, I remember just sitting down in a circle. I'm like, okay, so this is what's happened. The coach has been fired. They've asked me to take over the club. We're going to make some changes. Uh, you know, the Scottish Championships are in two weeks in Glasgow at the Kelvin Hall, the National Sports Centre, and we're going to go. And it's a learning experience. Like you know, we might win some medals, but that's not the point. We're just going to go and learn so we can go back next year. Man, we got our asses handed to us. I think, you know, with the whole club, uh, in fact, Ross, who I told you about earlier, I remember, I think he won the only medal. He got a bronze medal and everything he knew about fighting, he learned in nightclubs in Manchester, <laughs> not, not in my crack club. No. So, uh, so I hope British Airways aren't listening to that. But uh, anyway, so uh, you know, we, we just, you know, we went there and, you know, it was a relatively humiliating experience. We weren't good. Um, and we went back next year and we won. But um, I remember the story of a, a famous Japanese uh, karate instructor, uh, Kanazawa Sensei. And I guess he was in the All Japan Karate Championships. And just before uh, the, 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 you know, the, the, the championship, he broke his arm or broke his wrist maybe. And I think it was his mom that said to him, you know, do you fight with your arm or do you fight with your heart? Um and so famously he entered the tournament with a broken arm um and only used one arm um to to, to win the All Japan Karate Championships. And uh that story just came to me. I was like, that's what we're gonna do. But you know this as an athlete hands, the punch wasn't really the point. Well the, you know literally the punch was the point that you right. scored. Right, right. So much else you can coach someone to make them a good competitor. So I spent so much time Teaching attitude and mindset, and making sure people knew when they stepped on the mat, where do you stand? What do you do? Um, the psychology—like everybody wants to stare at each other in the eye. I would always teach people just stare at your opponent's shoulders. They think you're looking in in, in their eyes with this steely gaze, but you're not being psyched out by looking in theirs. Like mm-hmm. always, hang your gum shield in your belt so you don't have to go looking for it. You know when your name gets called. Just all these what I now call critical non-essentials, the little things that no one else does, some of which make you better than everyone else. And um, man, we showed up at these tournaments looking like we'd been competing for 10 years. And it's because we were paying attention to the details and we were doing a few things well, mm-hmm. uh, rather than trying to throw like, you know, spinning roundhouse kicks. We've only been studying karate for six months. And so right. uh, it was a formula that worked for us.
0: So so you're talking about controlling the details and the little things and really mastering one or two moves in this case or punches
1: basically yeah.
0: and I think there's something to be said for that in sort of a broader context to you know your journey or your entrepreneurship or whatever the the listener is is going through at the moment is we especially with the social media and you know in your face phone advertising and everything else that's happening these days it's so easy to get shiny object syndrome and be like oh i'm gonna do bitcoin now i'm gonna invest in real st- dude,
1: that's me don't 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 make me sound like a master here The objects <are> my thing. <laughs> yeah.
0: we all have it to an extent but i think that there's a really interesting practical piece of advice is just to kind of double down on like pick something and commit wow. to it and and really get into the trenches on it because if you can do the one thing and score one point on it at a time, you know, that will eventually lead up pretty well to, you know, to a big win. Like, look at our last Super Bowl, for example, there was one touchdown. across. It came down to, like, these little things that – and finally just breaking it down and breaking it down. And then all of a sudden, boom, yeah. you know, you score.
1: Exactly. And you know, I, I even think like my, my my first startup, the company that sold to Adobe, I mean, we were pretty, you know, we were only like 10 or 12 people, um, you know, even that by the time uh, we sold the company. And listen, we were building web applications, you know, we were building internet app, you know, building software applications that were being deployed on the internet instead of being installed from a CD-ROM. I know everyone on this podcast is probably thinking, What are you talking about but you used to install software on your computer from a cd-rom
0: i remember Um, (laughs) those days believe it or not
1: (laughs) and so you know so we were building internet applications but we 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 picked this particular niche where i had this passionate view that i was right and everyone was wrong um we took this very provocative sales position that the internet was failing to deliver on its promise that software in the transition from cd-rom to the web was less useful, less usable, less desirable, poor user experience, slower. And once we kind of presented the pain, we had the solution, right? It was something at the time that was called a rich internet application, something like an app running in a browser. And again, everyone's like, everything's like that now, but we're back in like 2002 here. Um, but the fact that we did this kind of niche down that we said, we're gonna tell, now, yeah, there's another 100 stories here, but like we were coding for food. right? We would take any job we could get. I was on contractor boards competing against people who were happy to do jobs I would have charged 10 grand for. They would do them for one grand, right? So we would do any coding, but the image we presented to the world was we are the rich internet application consultancy. And I remember after we sold that company to Adobe, um, one of our competitors, who were about twice the size of us, they thought we were about twice the size of them, and it was just all about how, like, we we picked this one thing, we did it really well, and again, to use like one of my karate coaching terms of phrase, when ignorance is mutual, confidence is king, and so we were just really, we presented ourselves as very assured and very confident in this this one thing we chose to do. Um, there's another. Sorry to advertise other podcasts on your podcast, but um, no, please. A, a gentleman in the Bay Area called Christopher Lockhead, um, and I'm blanking on the name of his podcast, but he's part of a. Um, uh, if you if you check out playbigger.com, it's a group of uh, folks, including some folks that used to work alongside me at Macromedia and, and at Adobe, and uh, Chris. Chris has a great book called Niche Down. If this is a, you know, if this podcast is something people are interested in, I think that book will be something guests will love because it's all about just like finding your niche and then owning it. Like that's who you are. That's what you do.
0: And we've we've had a lot of, a couple of guests so far on the podcast talk about just what you said, Uh, bring in uh, really finding yourself understanding who you are, what makes you tick, and, and as you've put it, your niche, and then owning it, and then being unapologetic about it.
1: Right. And it's okay to be wrong about it as well. You know, I, you know I, I'll often joke, like I'm right, but I have the right to be wrong and change my mind. You know, it's that idea of, what' well, what's it you say? You have a, a strong opinion loosely held.
0: Okay. A strong opinion loosely held. That's interesting. Can you uh, give us a, an example of when that's shown up in your life?
1: Goodness, that is my life. Um, I mean, I, I mean, suppose
0: uh, being an entrepreneur, that happens a lot. Well, you I think
1: know, being an something. entrepreneur, I, I, it's, funny, it's funny you should say that. I mean, you, you, you kind of take me to a, a little bit of a high horse. I don't think you be, I don't think you be an entrepreneur. Like, you know, I, I think there's like a cult of the entrepreneur right now, a cult of the founder, you know, I,
0: I sure. stole,
1: stole this phrase from someone else, but there's lots of entrepreneurs, you know, you'll, you'll go to Berkeley or, you know, I gave a presentation at Berkeley and, at the Haas Business School and somebody was like, yeah, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm like, what do you mean by that? Like, you can't just want to be someone that goes out and raises money and builds it. Like, what's the problem you want to solve? So I think, you know, being an entrepreneur is something that is like, there is a pool so strong um, that if you can't find someone else that's doing it, that you can go and do it with, you have this like, I have got to do this myself. Like, I believe in this. And then you get this anxiety and this panic that like, if I don't do this, someone else will do it or it won't get done. And I think you know that's what being an entrepreneur is. And it's about having this really strong gravitational pull into what well, um by definition is a niche. If it wasn't a niche, then there would be no opportunity to be entrepreneurial around it. And I think some of the you know some of the biggest successes uh, you know if you if you pick any company who you would look at, take a, you know, in my world, Peloton or Uber or Airbnb they were all like the stupidest little niche of an idea what if you could hail a black cab from your a town car from your phone what if you could sleep on someone else's sofa and they would get paid for it you know you know what if you brought a fitness class home to a bike everyone that heard the idea the first time uh, even even the investors who you know will now tell you that they saw that vision all along they didn't see the vision they believed in the people and they were like okay i'll give you 10 grand um, but the reality is it started, as just feeling like this incredible niche, except for the founders who kind of saw it first. And so I think that's a really interesting idea for people. Like if you are passionate about a niche and you're feeling pulled into it, then you're probably an entrepreneur, whether you identify with that or not.
0: Interesting. Cause I, I do agree that there is a huge community and contingent of people who are, uh, focused on sort of being an entrepreneur as you put it. And right and how does one be an entrepreneur? You've, you've really well defined it. And rather than sort of thinking with the end in mind, uh, what I'm hearing you say is, uh, f- what is your niche or, or more aptly put what is the problem that you care to solve in the world? Are you trying to open up more couches for people to sleep on or hit a button and get a car or some, some such thing? Cause that's clearly what has been done in the world. Um,
1: And, you know, just to to pile on that a little bit as well, like I think another thing that lots of people, you'll hear this all the time, like, you know, how does your problem have an impact? Everybody wants to make their so-called dent in the universe. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have a slightly different, (laughs) here's the thing, I have a different opinion on this. Um, I think it's okay to be an entrepreneur and something you just freaking love. It's like, you know, I absolutely love X. And if I could make that my job, now it might not be a venture scale problem to solve as an entrepreneur. um, But I think it's okay to be allowed to get yourself pulled towards a passion, something that connects with your why, um, something that kind of like sparks your soul a little bit, um, rather than always thinking like, you know, what's the, if I solve this problem, the world will be a better place. We kind of joke about these pitch decks, right? um, Right pick a trivial problem and then end the mission statement with therefore making the world a better place.
0: (laughs) Yep. Yep. Totally. So uh, I'm going to dig in on that passion idea because I think a lot of people have mixed opinions or, or very extreme opinions about following your passion. And some people say, if you follow the passion, the money will come. And others say, screw passion. Like, let's, let's just follow the money. Um, you're leaning more towards get something that sparks your your soul and gets your interest and in, and in kind of aligns with your why and then pers- pursue that even if it's not necessarily something that's going to IPO at a billion dollars
1: oh no I did not say that uh, okay <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, tell me more. What do you? What My investors are listening
1: in on this podcast. That is not how I feel. Um, no, absolutely. I, I I think it's absolutely possible, if not essential, that you can align the two. I think there's nothing wrong with going after a problem that you feel deeply about solving. That when you sit down at your desk every day and things are tough, um, that it's the it's the will to it's the will to be a part of the solution or to build the thing. You know, that's. That's your intrinsic motivation, you know. That's the thing that's gonna, you know, I mean, you know this. Like in your sport as an athlete, there's got to be moments you've sat there, like wet and cold and last, and thought, "Why am I still doing this every single day?" And if there's not something like deeper, like if there's not a a pilot light for that fire in your belly, you're gonna quit. And you've seen people quit, um, and 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 you didn't. And uh, so I think that's the the intrinsic motivation of being really attached to the problem. But I think it's okay to really care about what you're doing, but at the same time be thinking about, is this such a meaningful or big problem or are there enough other people who share this passion and problem that I want to solve, that there is a, um, there's an opportunity for this to be financial freedom for me? And uh, yeah, I'm not going to shy away from the fact that you know, my, my intention with the Sensi is not just to will the company and will the product into existence, um, but I hope that the decision to walk away from a very good career, um, making really good money, um, is one that I can show it was a better decision in the long term uh, to go and build a company and, you know, find an exit of some form for that company, whether that exit is as simple as, you know, we're crushing a quarter on quarter with revenue or it's an IPO or it's an acquisition, uh, Sure, so we think about these things every day.
0: And on the flip side of that passion comment, um, do you have a thought on when it might be a good idea to to pivot out of an idea because something can really spark you but it may you be you and like three friends or the only people in the whole world who love this thing so is there a point at which you feel like hey like maybe we should pivot and go in another direction or maybe this isn't for me or or do you usually tell people just to keep rolling and 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 go deeper
1: I'm such a pivotal no pun intended question how do you know when to cash out or when to just throw in your chips right and so i think it's hard and like generally like the most successful companies start with two or three founders and so you've got two or three people with very different situations potentially like one of you might have four kids all about to go to college and the other is like you know young free single mortgage free you know, and the other is independently wealthy, and you know you're all going to be in the same situation with the company and with the idea, but have different um you know, different levels of what's the word I'm looking for different tolerances to that situation, and that informs what you do. So, you know, I think as an individual, um, well, let me back up. I think you have to be very open to listening, and when I mean listening, I don't just mean to other people, but What's the market telling you? What's your gut telling you? Um, what, are, what are the people around you telling you? Like, is your team kind of looking at you like, okay, but i don't think this is gonna work, or are people you know, I think there's a lot of little signals that you need to be in tune with that are gonna give you that gut check of, is the idea still good or not? And if the idea is not good, then it's time for the hard conversations. If the idea is good, the next level of conversation is: it may be a good idea, but you know, do I still have the, you know, do I have the resource and the capacity and the will to follow through on it? And that, that becomes a personal conversation. So, sure. you know, it's, it's it's a hard one. I think it's something you have to constantly ask yourself as a question. And listen, it changes in my world when you become a company that takes on investment and you take on, you know, your venture backed and you have a board and investors to some degree you give up a little bit of that agency because the market decides, that decides now includes your investors uh yeah. who are used to you know you've been to the movie many more times than you have and may have a stronger opinion than you so uh yeah it's a it's an eternal conundrum
0: so so lis- being open to listening to to the little conversations and, and right I- Sounds like there's a there's a gut check moment, but also a, an internal kind of dialogue that you have to be in tune with will and willing to listen to and and let it be okay whatever it's leading you towards.
1: Right. No, I think I, I I think that's exactly it. And uh, you know, I'm a big believer in um, it's a phrase I stole from one of my colleagues at Microsoft. But you've really got to be able to get to the why behind the what, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and really understand why you're doing something or why something is motivating to you. Um, If you can tap into that, um, I think you find yourself having a much more authentic conversation with yourself around the idea of pivot or persevere and pivot shouldn't mean, pivot shouldn't mean going a totally different direction. I think that's another, you know, another, you know, myth in the valley right now is Mm -hmm. uh, pivoting is the idea of. Look at Slack, great example. We started building a game, but like, screw it, we're going to build productivity software. And that's not really what happened. Um, you know, really what happened was the game's not working, but there's something here that we can zoom in on. We've built this internal collaboration tool for the team that's working really well. And, you know, let's lean into that. So so pivoting to me in, in, the, in the sense that was presented in the whole vernacular of lean startups, pivot is being open to saying, is there something that we've learned if we just lean in a little harder on that to the, you know, you know, trim away this stuff to the side and lean in on this, maybe there's more of a there there uh, or do we pull back and is there a bigger picture and we're two in the weeds. And so pivoting isn't saying this isn't working. Let's do like, you know, you know, we were, going to, we were going to open a bakery and now we're going to open a brewery. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. We were, we were going to open a bakery, but actually, you know, we're, we're really good at making dough and maybe we should just sell dough to a bunch of other bakeries. You know, that's more how I think people should think about a pivot is like, what are we doing well and what are we not doing well? And how do we lean into what we're doing
0: well? Gotcha. So doubling down on the things that are working or that you have a competency on and then maybe considering shedding the extra.
1: Yeah, and actually, you remind me, I can't remember to whom I dispensed this advice, And this advice, but I, I, I remember maybe on a board I was sitting on actually, uh, and my, my feedback was you have to be more attached to the problem than you are to the solution. Um, and if you're attached to the problem, um, then you're very open to the, so the solution path you're on right now not being the right one, but there's no emotional attachment to going in that other direction, because you're, you're still pointing at the problem you want to solve. Whereas if you're very attached to the solution, you know, we've decided we're gonna do X and you actually like doing X, um, then typically I find, um, especially when I'm in an advisory capacity, people are so into the solution and the idea of what it is that they're building uh, that they become a little more blinkered to the fact that it's actually not the best thing for the problem that they, um, that they uh, believe they want to address. Does that make sense?
0: it does if if you're convinced that making it red is the solution but actually possibly blue might work better you you may solve the problem but there's probably a better way
1: yeah there you go there you go
0: i know my red blue comment is oversimplified but <laughs> no i
1: mean it, it, it literally comes down to that though i mean it literally comes down to that is yeah
0: cuz that that, yeah. that makes complete sense i've i've seen that happened in my line of work as well when people are convinced on a certain line of financing or a certain right you, um, or, 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 or fixing a heater in a certain way. I'm like, well, yeah, you could do that, or you could just get a tankless thing and it and you don't even have to put it inside the house. And they're like, oh, right, exactly,
1: yeah. and, exactly. And, and it's funny, uh, oftentimes, um, you know, I, I a designer I used to work with, I think he runs design for DoorDash now, but I work with him at Adobe. Albert Poon and uh, I remember Albert saying to me in a bar in Dublin, <laughs> um, "I'll I'll willing I'll willingly accept constraints, but I'll never accept compromise." Um, and you know, for him, constraints were the boundaries around which he understood. Okay, now that I know what the constraints are, I can go and start solving the problem. But compromises were something that he was like, "Well, it would just suck if we did that." And so uh, I've always I've always taken that line with me.
0: That's really great advice. And you, I mean, man, you were so full of those sayings. You've picked up so many of those great ones. You're going to have to write a book about that.
1: Yeah, my karate club would probably listen to this and rolling in their eyes. By the time you were in your fourth or fifth year, it's funny. I went back to an alumni event uh, a couple of years ago, flew back to Edinburgh, and they'd done a, you know, get all the generations of the club back together again. And as part of it, they had some of the, you know, some of the old club, you know, people who had taught from white Belt were teaching classes and it was just it was kind of hilarious and a little bit weird for me because they were literally using some of my jokes you know i was like god i told that joke like 10 years ago every year
0: oh that's great well you've you've lived on
1: exactly exactly dna graph successful yeah
0: excellent well <laughs> steven thank you uh so much for all of that there was i mean so many little takeaways in there that i'm sure people want to re-listen to. Um, But in the interest of time, I'm going to transition us a little bit here to Uh our Focus 5, which is the final segment of our show, where I ask every guest the same five questions on every episode. And I'm pretty excited to hear what your answers are. Are I want to hear what what
1: everyone else said first, but in the interest of time, just shoot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We could be here for a while. Um, So you, you sort of alluded to this first question, but I'll see if your answer changes. What book have you gifted most often?
1: Did I allude to an answer?
0: You mentioned a book earlier. I forgot. I didn't get to jot it down. But you, you brought up a book.
1: No, I think a uh, book. I, I just, I loved reading it. I didn't want it to end. And now that I'm living in this world, it's the intersection of sport and business and you know technology. Um, Shoe Dog, uh, which is about oh, yeah. Til now the founder of Nike. And uh, I had Nike as a client when I worked for Adobe. Um, My wife had Nike as a client and she remembers, you know, I think a few times seeing Phil Knight. He would still go into the cafe at Nike and he he had his table and his paper would be laid out for him. And he'd just kind of sit there, even though he's retired, and go and hang out in the cafe at Nike. And uh, man, that book, it just tells the story of like, talk about hustle and talk about doing something. the company almost dying a million times. It's beautifully written and it's inspiring. it's it's inspiring so yeah shoe dog by phil knight
0: shoe dog great answer i love 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 that book so maybe your answer will be inspired by this but maybe not if you could get an an hour of someone's time who's past or present life or dead and ask as many questions as you wanted who would that person be and why
1: oh this is easy uh and yeah i would have thought it'd be hard i mean i guess i'm all wrapped up in everything that's happening right now around the celebration of the apollo moon landing and uh Man, I grew up as a kid. Gen- I know every kid wanted to be an astronaut, but I like properly, really wanted to be an astronaut until I discovered I'd have to be a fighter pilot first, and I didn't want to be a fighter pilot. So uh, I was fascinated with space, and so if I could, uh, you know, if I could sit down with Neil Armstrong or or Buzz Aldrin, that'd be phenomenal. It just blows me away that those guys were on the moon.
0: <laughs> That's a new one. No one, no one has said that yet. So thank what? you. What? For- <laughs> <laughs> You're the first one to bring any astronaut into that conversation. Oh,
1: come on, lift your eyes up, people. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what is one thing that you believe that most people would disagree with you on?
1: Everything. Um, so I, you know, I alluded earlier to this concept of critical non-essentials. Uh, <laughs> you know this idea. So I stole that idea from the um, former England rugby uh, coach, Sir Clive Woodward. Um, he has a great book called Winning. Actually, I should recommend that book as well, Winning by Clive Woodward. But. Uh, Critical non-essentials is this idea that you know you you there's all these little things that you can do differently that other people don't pay attention to and the whole is greater than the parts and so generally um, I'm you know I'm now attuned to the critical non-essentials and so that means I'm like we should do this and this and this and people are generally like that's too much that's scope creep or we don't need to do that simplest thing that works I'm like yeah you're right but we should do this this and this so uh, I'm always looking for the critical non-essentials.
0: Great. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. Like how do you start your day?
1: I have three dogs and a five-year-old. So this could get pretty, uh, pretty intense, but uh, I commute to my house. Yeah, I think that's the best way I would describe my morning routine. Because, you know, I am uh, really lucky now that my, uh, my predominant office is at home. You know, like everyone else, I have my WeWork um, that I can use if I have to be in the city. But uh, I love having a space at home I can work at. But... Um, yeah, you know, it's something that I found really works for me is commuting home. Uh, so I, I kind of get up in the morning, usually just slightly before the dogs, the kids, and the wife. And I'll, uh, I've made a habit of going to the grocers, you know, every every morning and drive to the same market. Even though I could shop for the week easily online, I go and I shop for the day. Um, I get my coffee. I see the same people. I kind of anchors me a little bit to like there's a community like not everyone cares about sensors and smart sportswear and digital coaching I kind of meet real people so I kind of feel that connection with the community and then when I come home it's like I mean it's like everybody I'm sure you know the mornings are rushed so it's this kind of rushed family time getting you know my son to school or to camp my wife trying to get to work but I have that kind of like intense family time of like, let's get breakfast and like what's happening today and get the dogs, you know, out or get the dogs walked. And then I say goodbye to the family. I, you know, I, I make that long commute downstairs and out the back garden and into my office. And, uh, that's my morning routine. And it just, you know, it, it's, I mean, you, you'll understand the importance of ritual. And for me, it's, it's just important. You know, it's become my ritual. And I, I kind of do the same in reverse at the end of the
0: day. Excellent. So, Stephen, where can we find you online the most?
1: I'm like the Matrix. I'm everywhere. You know, I, I would say, you know, for people on this podcast, follow me on Twitter. Um, I'll give you my, uh, my Twitter handle for the show notes, but Stephen J. Webster, Stephen with a V. Um, you know, Twitter is probably the place if I'm ever going to post something publicly, it's there or LinkedIn. That's kind of like my, my kind of business professional persona. If you know me personally, then I'm an idiot on Facebook, but thankfully the rest of the world doesn't get to see that. I think you get to see it. Um, I do,
0: yeah, I, I'm one of those fortunate fear. Yeah,
1: I'm a prolific <laughs> idiot on Facebook. My, my my goal with Facebook is like, if I find it funny, that's the only criteria for whether I'm gonna share it, if it makes me laugh. Um, but uh, yeah, online I would say, you know, find me on Twitter and that'll kind of like, you know, um, help you find me elsewhere.
0: Excellent, well, uh, connect with Stephen on Twitter, and uh, he he's also fairly active on LinkedIn. As he said, he's got a lot of projects going on, and some really cool stuff with the Sensei, as I alluded to in the intro. So uh, make sure you take a look at that. And uh, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the show, bringing that value, and really bringing some some cool thoughts and some takeaways for the audience.
1: I really enjoyed it, and uh, best of luck um, as you as you launch the podcast. I'm really excited to hear what other people more talented than me have got to say. So I look forward to it.
0: Excellent. Well, appreciate you being part of it and uh, we'll sign it off for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of another way to play. It was a really great conversation with Steven. I hope you got a lot out of that. Uh, I know I sure did. There's so many little nuggets and quotes that he's stolen from other people that uh, you should take and adapt to your own story. Uh, If you want to connect with Stephen, I got his Twitter handle down in the show notes. And uh, he's also available online. If you just type in Stephen Webster Asensei again, in the show notes, uh, you can find him online. And as always, I'd like to find a time to connect with you personally. So while you're in the show notes, hit my Calendly link, get on the calendar. Let's have a chat for 15 minutes so I can find out how to keep making this podcast even better. So until next time, I'm your host, Hans Strazina. This has been another way to play. And remember, make every chapter better than the last. Thanks for joining in for this episode of Another Way to Play, making the next chapter of your life better than your last. For more insights and inspiration to help you make that personal leap, be sure to engage with Hans on social media and get your questions answered right here on the show reach out to Hans at chief S N a H on Instagram, and we'll catch you on the next episode of another way to play.